China is a mega powerhouse. It dominates Asia and it has become coined what was the factory of the world. Their ability to produce cheaply products and service, but they couldn't do that as the status quo was. So China needed to try to merge in some capitalism into communism. And this merging was breathtaking in its impact. What's up, everybody? All right, today we are talking about China and a little bit about de-dollarization. I got a lot of information here. We got a lot of facts that I'm going to try to put together so we can really understand the slowdown that is happening in China, the overall economic slowdown that we're seeing. What is, first of all, driving it? How did it happen? What's driving it? What does it mean? Both short-term and long-term implications. Now, China is the story of the last 30, 40 years. It's absolutely undeniable. Their growth has been nothing short of absolutely incredible. Uh, China just blew past anything that anyone believed. And a lot of people started talking about China completely overtaking the United States, becoming the world's reserve currency, as well as, well, taking over pretty much everything. Uh, China, it seemed unstoppable. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and China is an outrageously old country, one of the oldest country and cultures in the world uh, that is absolutely rich and beautiful culture, um, but it also has a very harsh past, and that past isn't so long ago. And the things that we know about the communist government, what they've hidden, what they've done as the country that had the largest population up until recently hid. Um, with that, China has made absolute leaps and bounds in modernizing, in bringing their citizens up. And I think those things must be recognized. Um, now, China being under communist rule, uh, capital, people, is very tightly regulated. And a lot of things that come out of the country, we're really not sure how true those things are. So there's certain things that uh, were either exaggerated, outright lied about, or got mixed up. China can turn off the information anytime it wants to, as it did with its unemployment recently. I think about two months ago, they stopped reporting their youth unemployment numbers because they were so bad that instead of uh, talking about it, they just didn't give anybody the information. So China is unique. It's a unique country. And its um, explosion in economic progress a lot of people, I think, vastly misunderstand, as well as its slowdown and what's happening now. So these are uh, very complicated. We're obviously not going to get to the Chinese China story at all. I mean, you can't even begin to touch it in, in a podcast, more or less books, podcasts, movies, everything else. You, uh, Henry Kissinger's uh, China is a great way probably to start 
a little hard, a little dry book to read, but it gives you backstory to understand today. And there's many other books on their culture. But economically speaking, when we're looking at today what's going on, it's important to understand um, China's driving economy, what has made it. And we're going to stick to short term here. So if we go back to the basically 80s, early 90s, it became clear to China after a visit in the United States, they had missed the boat, right? They, I think a lot of people in the Chinese government were shocked how far behind the rest of the world they were. And it became very, very clear to them that they had to make changes and making changes in China that is steeped in tradition is, is not a easy thing, especially when you're talking about economic and structural changes to government because of their tight control over their people. China is a mega powerhouse because of its population and because of its um, geography. It's a very big country uh, and also its location. It dominates Asia and it has become coined what was the factory of the world. Their ability to produce cheaply products and service Western um, consumption gave it a absolute edge, but they couldn't do that as the status quo was. So China needed to try to merge in some capitalism into communism. And this merging of capitalism with communism was breathtaking in its impact. And it, it, I think it, it had a lot of people questioning a lot of things. Now, the Chinese government, right now, the numbers they're putting out, um, which people still believe that they are overdone, obviously, uh, they stated about 5% growth this year. Uh, most likely, though, we're looking at 3%, uh, so probably close to half of what they stated. Now, that is half of what the record rate was not even 10 years ago. Um, now, still 5%, that's, that's a lot, right? United States, we don't grow at 5%, but we're a totally different type of economy. Um, but before we get into this, uh, let's go back to the air quotations modernization of China under communist rule. So the first thing we got to realize is um, how China reports is done by provenance. So you have individual cities reporting up to Providence allocation of goods and services predicated on needs within those provinces. So you have rural provinces and you have central, uh, centralized distribution and as well as governance of the country. Uh, as China decided that they were going to um, become uh, more industrial, what they realized is these industrialized nations uh, with technology, they had just exploded the 100, 100 years prior. Um, and it wasn't only an economic growth. It was quality of living, everything. I, I mean, you have to remember that China had billions of people that were in utter poverty. The humanitarian crisis was shocking. This need and realization, I think, was one that was, if we don't do something now, we will be so far left behind the rest of the world, we'll never catch up. And most of the economic growth that we've seen in China 
And the reason why it was so fast is it was plugged into a system that had been developed over hundreds of years. So they got the benefit of the result without needing that infrastructure build out. So it was immediate catch up. All that innovation had already been done. It was just starting to plug and play. So that allowed them to just jump start the whole system. And then what they did is they started to free up ports, certain financial systems, and they started to allow trade. And then they started to get into the servicing and production, um, all still very obviously very, very tightly controlled. Um, but they did start to free up certain segments of their economy. Now, this explosion in growth occurred as people started moving out of the interior, moving into the cities, the industrialized places with uh, factories, workers that could get high jobs. This caused um, a growth in the average mean um, uh, income as well as the average GDP. So to Share real quick uh, some of these numbers before we start to really dive into it. Uh, the overall GDP growth from China on a per capita basis. Uh, get here. See if I can. I'm jumping around here because that's how I do, guys. And you know that's how I do. So it was right around 5% and it jumped to 15% in the matter of, you know, a couple decades. Something that that's... Uh, on a global basis for a country, that is shocking. The Chinese people have very few means to get, capture, and manage wealth and capital. There is very little types of investments or free markets that they can do. One of the main thing is they can own houses. And uh, this kind of encompasses the story of today. So, all of a sudden, as the means and the the income growth and the per capita uh, GDP growth started to occur, you had a, I struggle to use words that we are common with in the United States, like middle class, um, but you had something of a similar class restructuring as people moved up from other poverty to lower income and more of this middle type class. Um, now, as they started to do this, meaning they had the basics, they could have all of a sudden they could afford things, they had disposable income, they needed somewhere to put it, they didn't have anywhere to put it. So what we saw in the early 2000s, late 1990s is a vast increase in allocation of capital within China to housing, because they had to put their money. It's also very important to know that these titans of industry that came up in China, um, their wealth is controlled. They can't move capital around the world like we can. So if you are a multi-billionaire in China, you can't go and invest a billion dollars into the United States. Uh, in fact, the Chinese government, a lot of people don't know, actually played around with being a global currency. And the moment that they did, the outflows of capital out of China was so staggering, they had to stop because people fleed. They wanted their money protected and they wanted it out. So China cracked down and they only allow certain amounts of capital to be deployed outside. They're keeping their currency in, controlled, afloat, and uh, um, very 
tightly controlled. It's a communist country. So what that means is people that are extremely wealthy there, they have to keep their money there. They don't have a lot of options. The Chinese government doesn't want you to take your multi-millions and just running. Now, you can take some out, which Chinese uh, people have done. They've start, they, they bought houses elsewhere. They've tried to get out. And that has caused huge property explosions in places like Vancouver, Canada, where the Canadian government offered if you brought a million dollars into Canada, you would get your, um, your citizenship. Now, that caused property values on the west coast of, of Canada to absolutely explode because uh, you had so many Chinese people that were literally buying houses. No one was even living in them. And they were just buying them as investment properties. They were throwing their money in there. They were getting citizenship. And uh, it caused a housing crisis. In fact, in COVID, they stopped China or Canada stopped all foreign investment to they couldn't buy homes anymore in Canada. Now, they did it for everyone, but it was really aimed at the Chinese. It was they were the one driving up the housing prices. And that's what they were trying to get under control because so many people were trying to get their money out of China. That's a common thing that we see. But in China, lack of investment opportunities and options, Chinese buy homes because that's what they can. This is the crux, though, of the problem. Why? Because China, uh, the China slowdown that we're seeing right now is a real estate crisis. So it's a combination of real estate and long-term debt, which we'll get into both of these things. Okay. So if we look first and forth, uh, uh, first at the real estate crisis and what we've done, what we've seen um, right now, well, starting out, how, how much it's supposed to grow uh, within the next we the IMF forecasts that in the next five years, China will represent 22% of the world's total growth. That's double the United States, even with the slowdown. And a lot of people say, oh, China's story is over. It's not over. Okay. Um, now it is a slowdown. And it's nothing I think what people thought it would be because we'll get into some of these long term issues. But the Chinese economies here, it's not going away. Um, and it will continue growing. But the growth is not going to be anything like it was, and they will suffer from major debt problems and long-term growth problems. You, the Right now, we have a real estate crisis due to excess borrowing um, and a larger debt crisis that is mainly concentrated within the government. So they're currently at record jobless um, reporting. So what happened, essentially, when we look at it right now, uh, the government attempted to really, really crack down on developers in 2020 uh, due to the risk of the financial system. Uh, that pushed housing prices down. All of a sudden, developers started building houses and uh, people that had bought houses that weren't built yet obviously stopped paying their mortgages because they didn't have it and they, people weren't building them anymore. Now, the borrowing was down 13% in just the first five months of this year is we look at what um, what they're trying to do about the crisis, the central bank, so the People's Bank of China has already cut interest rates. They've offered LGF uh, these, which these are ultra long-term um, mortgages to try to give temporary relief and to try to avert a full-on meltdown. Uh, some cities have lowered down payment requirements they are trying to do something about this real estate crisis. Now, what got them to this point? 
First of all, China's annual economic output surged from 500 billion to 18 trillion just between 1992 and 2022. Mind-blowing. All these years of double-digit growth, that pushed the annual GDP per capita in that time frame from 400 bucks to 13,000. Now, with the problems, what happened is you can go back to, you know, 2008 post, uh, China was doing some massive investments to build up real estate and created a construction boom as the government tried to spur this as they were having uh, infrastructure problems as people were leaving the interior of China and coming to the outside. Now, after years of building houses, middle class GDP per capita increasing, disposable income, Chinese trying to get houses so they could put their money somewhere so they could have some kind of investment as they saw their house increase. They were getting wealthier, right? This is very much like a 2008 situation, okay? So in 2008, 20, uh, 2001, we had 9-11. The government dropped interest rates to spur the economy, created a housing and a debt boom, right? Now, China, though, it's a little different. Here's why. Not a little, a lot. Right now, um, the housing boom the property sector in general, that equates or accounts for 23% of the entire country's GDP. Almost a third of their country's GDP, right? Um, Massive. When you add imports, right, for housing materials, things like that, it's it's 26. Uh, What that led us to right now is that... um, as that GDP was such a big portion, it starts to cool down, right? We start to have a lot of contracting. It doesn't take a lot to start to cause defaults. We had major defaults. $87 billion um, worth of wealthy individuals was lost. They can't repay it from, I'm never going to be able to say the names of these trusts. Please. I know. I'm dyslexic. I can't speak English, people. Don't hold me to Chinese. Um Zon Grong Trust managed, uh, as well as four other companies worth about um, uh, $19 billion as well. So the defaults really started to pile up because of the contraction. They stopped developing. These, uh, you probably remember about a year ago, in fact, I think I did a video on the large uh, developers, which was the largest developer in the world that was going bankrupt in China. Now, as this has gone on, home prices have softened. Yes, they have cushioned. But uh, the real estate sector, and the uh, crisis today, which makes up 30% of the country's GDP. Now, that's double the percentage of GDP of the United States in the housing. So to China, this is a big deal. And you're affecting the rich, the middle class, the people that had money because that's the only place that they could really own assets. Now, as that real estate softening and the housing market started to cool down, developers are all going defunct, people are losing their money in homes that weren't building. You have homes and apartments and condos that are all sitting empty all around China. Uh, We have another looming problem, and that is a incredible debt problem. So when you look at the debt story, of China, which is very similar to um, 
a lot of the countries. But a lot of times in the United States, we think we're so indebted and China owns all our debt. And I hear a lot of people that think China's basically debt free. And that could not be further from the truth. In fact, local government debt reached $12 trillion or roughly 76% of the economic output. Now, in 2022. But here's the thing. That was a 62% uh, in, uh, increase from 2019, right? So now in the United States, we saw the same thing, which was huge. It was like 30%, right? Theirs was over double what we were seeing. Now, this was caused largely because they are facing that real estate crisis along with the COVID crisis all at once. Now, to make matters worse, the Chinese national debt um, was at 34% in just 2012. It's over 100% today. Um, so we've had, once again, a massive, massive debt problem. Now, the local um, government issuing debt loans, trying to get the interest rates under control, we have this contraction. All of it's literally happening at the same time. Now, that is spurring on. Uh, this year, massive unemployment and this machine that was being fueled by investment and debt is also getting hit with the next part. And that is that a lot of their, um, I won't say allies, but we could just say business partners, uh, the United States as others are starting to divest from China infrastructure. So the amount of things that we are going to China for we're going elsewhere. Why? Because as their economy got bigger, their chief product of cheap labor, cheap labor uh, started to demise. So to us, that export didn't make much sense. Now you have another problem that we could get once their labor reached a certain cost, we could go to countries to still get the same labor prices as China in Mexico, which had more skilled labor than China did. So all of a sudden, the options at that price point for the Western world to get all of their things that they want made, like cars, uh, anything you buy from Amazon, right? I mean, the, uh, the options really started to open up. Well, why don't we go to Mexico? Why don't we go to the Philippines, right? It, and so we started to divest. We started to really look, um, even after COVID, we started to really look at the concentration of our dependency on China. And the United States started to say, this world is flat thing is really good, but maybe we should be self-sufficient and maybe we should divest from one person that we are nice with, but at the same time, we uh, definitely view uh, them as a threat. Um, and their, their economy, their military, um, is probably one of the largest threats to the United States. And so we started to take this head on. Now this started very strongly um, with a few presidents, but Trump really started to look and say, we need to renegotiate, which he was exactly right in his renegotiating with the deals with China. It was beyond one-sided unfair, and it was just outdated. Things had changed. Um, and we've continued that. We The United States is not looking at that. Now, the cherry on top of all of this. And this is where we really get into problems. So as of right now, that the debt has risen uncontrollably. Now, debt is a funny thing. 
debt rising actually isn't a problem. That doesn't matter. You could have debt that could double, triple, quadruple. But if your income is going up 10 times and your debt's only going up two times, doesn't matter. The debt's basically irrelevant, right? Because now all of a sudden you're so outpacing it that where you started, it's actually less debt as a percentage of income than when you started. Now, this is the problem with China. As their debt is increasing, their ability to get future gains is decreasing. It is decreasing due to their um, economic crisis in real estate, their consumer uh, crisis, which is huge. So the consumer buying power so far this year in China um, has been halved. Now, consumers and unemployment, um, which is really wrecking the country. So consumers are stopped buying. We have high unemployment, uh, all short-term things, but the long-term cherry on top is the demographic decline. Now, the demographic decline is very, very interesting because um, it's even with its more stagnant trading partners like the United States, as well as others, we have a very uh, robust population growth compared in comparison. We have not only a fertility rate that is higher, but we also have um, uh, people that want to move here. In fact, the United States... When we start to talk about de-dollarization, uh, it's really important to remember that in the United States, we are a major driver and importer, excuse me, of capital and people. So capital flows into the United States in 2023 reached an all-time high. Net private inflows in the form of billions, uh, foreign residents increasing their holdings. So the United States is a safety net from people all around the world. They bring their, the people come here, but their money comes here and it comes here a lot to be protected. China doesn't have that. You don't go to a communist regime to protect your capital, right? It's the opposite. Their money wants to get out. So the, all of these things are coming together at China. And then to make matters worse, the population after it had absolutely exploded, because, uh, or in the, I mean, really a 50% between 1950 and 1970. So you had a 50% increase between 1950 and 1970 of their population, which caused the 1970 crackdowns, their um, a controversial one-child rule. Um, they were terrified about it. That is now coming to uh, roost because the one thing about population is you just can't turn a switch. So even if they all, even if the pop fertility rate jumped to 5%, you have a now a massive generational gap. This generation demand, economic demand is spurred by people, plain and simple. The greatest threat to any country is a population collapse. It is the one threat that no economy has or can survive. A population collapse will wreak havoc on everything infrastructure because you have debts that are incurred and people that are getting older that need to be taken care of. So at the end of life, meaning if you're 60 to however long you lie, you live, you incur almost all your medical costs. You're talking like 80 plus percent. You need help to do everything, 
right? So you're at end of life care. It is a very, uh, it is a very draining time for that person on the economy. And that spurs even more because they're not putting anything in. So you need a, a, a bigger young population and a smaller old population. When that inverse inverses, you literally have no demand. You have no economic stimulus. You have no workers. You have no helpers. It is a de economic death knell. It really is. Um, now, China is facing this. Their population um, collapse on top of their indebtedness has led a lot of people to believe that not only will China not continue to grow, but China's standing in the world, we could, we could see it being questioned by 2030. Um, these are short-term problems combined with long-term problems. Now, you can see the difference of debt and short-term problems in the United States, where the world's reserve currency. We have a higher fertility rate, even though that's a major problem. But we still, our population is growing because we have, uh, we've reached highs over the last five, six years for immigration. So we have people moving in more than we've ever had in the United States, more capitals coming in, more economic demand is coming in, our GDP, right, is 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 growing. Now, that's not to say that our debt is good, we're totally out of control in the United States. And it's very dangerous, because you never know when those things will stop. Um, but at least there's an offset, at least we have time to do something about it. In fact, the our population of young working adults, meaning the millennials, we are the largest population as term, terms of a percentage in the world in any country. So millennials in the United States are the largest young demographic percentage of population of any country in the world. Almost all countries are inverse. Now, our next generation after the millennials, that is scary. Um, and so millennials have some babies, okay? Uh, really support your country. I'm not kidding. I did, I have four. Come on, do your part. So now, besides the fact that you need to have kids and work hard for everybody else, if you want your parents to live a good life and if you want to live a good life and have infrastructure, um, the country itself has to be set up to attract things. I believe that China had an opportunity to come onto the world stage to show the world that it had changed its ways. And that is when the treaties with Hong Kong were up. Um, and the idea was that China wouldn't do all the things that it wasn't supposed to do, said it wouldn't do, and roll in all headstrong, all communist-like, go into Hong Kong and kind of go back on, on its promises, which it did. It showed us that, okay, yeah, you can't trust China again. Now, the population problem also goes along with this lack of trust within China. The reason being is the allocation of resources, as we mentioned before. So as I, I spoke about China and the allocation of resources, which is predicated on providences and cities, which is due to reporting. We have a certain amount of population. We need a certain amount of goods and services. Well, you can see that the incentives there, if I'm a little city and I say, oh, okay, well, we had 100 babies. And I know that because we had 100 babies that the centralized government will allocate resources to 100 babies and our community for 100 more people. What if I just said we had 110? That's a 10% increase. Now, this was happening all over China. All the cities that was going up to their um, provinces, their territories, and then going up to the local government. 
Some have estimated that this fudging of numbers to allocate more resources uh, amasses to something to the tune of hundreds of millions of people, 200 million people, that they have basically overstated being born. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why this population problem has come to light in the last 10 years. Because, you know, go figure, the numbers out of China just aren't right. Um, whether the Chinese government actually fully knew that or not, we'll never know, because they would never admit it if they, if they didn't. But the numbers that they were putting out are definitely not in line with reality to a stunning factor. Um, China was the story of our time. But really, I think, don't hate me, China, but I don't mind if you do. Kind of a flash in the pan. Meaning what we saw is we saw 200 years of growth hit in two decades. And they didn't get to the rest of the countries, but they moved up. And when you have billions of people, a, a move like a $400 GDP per capita to 13000 that shakes the world, the economic world. It changes it. And uh, we build infrastructure around China. Everyone did. But now we're starting to divest. Once again, I don't think China's going away. That's not what we're saying here. Um, but I do not believe over the next 20 years that, first of all, millennials and others will think of China like we did before. That's a dangerous thing. Now, when people lose their economic strength, they use their other strength, and that's military. Destabilization of superpowers is a very scary thing. And that's why China is being so closely watched, especially with Taiwan. Why? Because we have such interest in Taiwan because all the chips from the microphone and the camera I'm using here to the A-10 warthogs and F-14s and stealth bombers and to your hospital uses the chips that come out of Taiwan. That's why we've invested over $100 billion in the U.S. government's invested into chip manufacturing in places like Arizona and Boise, Idaho, as they're trying to invest huge amounts, $50 billion to construct what are basically cities that are massive plants. We are trying to bring that back in and not be at risk as we see a destabilization across the world, from Russia to China. And this is going to be a defining theme. It's something that I think, as millennials and us, we're growing up, we've, we've noticed what is a destabilization. Um, and we're seeing it across everywhere. Now, um, people may be trying to test the United States. A lot of people talk a lot about the BRICS. But at the end of the day, um, they don't have what the United States has. And that is stability for now. And a military that is unlike the world has ever seen. So we keep attracting capital. In fact, it's rising. More people are bringing more capital in than ever. More people are coming in than ever. How long that'll last, we will see. We can always ruin it. Uh, but if we're looking at the world stage, the not so silent sleeper is really India. And India, I believe, will take place the China story. The next two, three decades will be the story of India. So as we move through, I'm absolutely fascinated by these economic trends and changes. 
China is a big deal. We are connected with these countries. It's not like one can do poorly and the other one can't. We have we're trying to divest, but this is more beyond infrastructure. This is more beyond getting your uh, Amazon packages. These are financial products, huge con uh, companies that have huge accounts allocated overseas. Destabilization always comes home to roost when the world is flat. So it's important to know. It's important to know that a black swan event like a destabilized country, whether that be Russia, something in Europe or China, when we're dealing with these ma major economies, they don't just slow down, stop, fail or boom without affecting America. We are the linchpin in the world's economy. So it will have effects. Now, who knows? Maybe China goes even more capitalistic. That's what a lot of people were wondering, where they're going to free up their markets even more. But I think with Hong Kong, all those hopes got dashed. So hope this was interesting, everybody. Keep trying to learn more about China, what's going on there. It tells you a lot about the world stage as these chips begin to fall, the alliances with Russia, BRICS, what they're doing, which has been a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. Um, well, as a Westerner, as an American, that's good to see for me.